I'd say that's a good start to a worship service, wouldn't you? Amen? All right. My name is Mark. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm so delighted you're here to join us today. Uh, there's more seats out today than usual, so we're not trying to confuse you regulars with more seats and less seats, but we have Easter coming up, and we had a work day here yesterday, and so there's a, about a 60 to 70% chance that the seat you're sitting on right now is safer than it was before yesterday, because we had a team come in and do some repairs, and uh, a large group of us, and we did all kinds of things around the church, and uh, it was a joyful time together. So thank you to the, all those who did that. It will be our custom going forward to have discussion questions that come up at the end of the service. So uh, be ready for those at the end of the service. You can take your phone out, maybe snap a picture of those. That gives you a chance to do some uh, responsive uh, type things with your family or with other people uh, after the service is over. Last week we looked at uh, Acts 23. We encourage you to turn there. We'll be picking that up soon in uh, in, in chapter Uh, 23 verse 12. Paul strategically sought alignment with his attackers on any point possible. And this was wise on his part. The alignment was limited. It gave them, but they gave them a reason to listen and uh, diffused them long enough for them to hear uh, sound reasoning. Clearly the alignment stopped at the point at which Paul was unwavering about the truth. He did not compromise He was not seeking to align so much that he would deny Christ or his calling. And I asked you to all think about how often uh, we Christians quickly identify the things that differentiate us from an unbelieving world. But then we turn and wonder why we don't have the opportunities to share with people the good news of Christ. It's okay to have that alignment. We see Paul using it, uh, his Roman citizenship and his uh, Pharisee background uh, in strategic points to make connections. We also notice Paul's quick change of heart after having kind of told off the high priest, not realizing he was a high priest. He uh, drew the law to his own mind, shared that, and kind of redirected his words after that. I love how he brought to light the different views of his accusers regarding the resurrection and then was removed from the danger. And then we read that wonderful experience that he had in 23 verse 11 where it says, the following night the Lord stood by him and said, take courage for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. How beautiful that the Lord was now standing with the man who had been faithfully standing for him. As a pastor, over the years, I've learned the power of God's word. And and by that, I mean that certain texts, when it comes time to preach them, there's a natural uh, uh, recoil from that. And this is one of those texts today where everything in me wanted to see if Thomas was busy or, or see if Wade would like to, to jump in or, or Dave or if some, anybody preached this but me. Um, but I'm thrilled to tell you that I couldn't be more excited to present this text to you today. I entitled it Escaping from Danger in a, a subtitle of resting in his goodness. Now that phrase is going to rile some of you up because you're going to go through it and go, where's that in this text? So I'm going to ask you to just hold off on the email and, and hear me out. 
We'll pick it up from where we left off last week, and we will notice that any religion devoid of Jesus is dangerous. We'll also see that procrastination is not a safe response to the moving of the Holy Spirit. Look with me now at our text at Acts chapter 23, starting in verse 12. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath, neither to eat nor drink till they killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and the elders and said, we have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now, therefore, you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly. And we are ready to kill him before he comes near. Now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush, so he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul, the prisoner, called me and asked me to bring this young man to you, as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand and going aside, asked him privately, what is it that you have to tell me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow. And though they were going to inquire somewhat, as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him, but do not be persuaded by them for more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him who have bound themselves by an oath, neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting your, for your consent. The tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, Tell no one that you have informed me of these things. Then he called two of the centurions and said, Get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him uh, safely to Felix the governor. And he wrote a letter to this effect. Claudius Lysias, to his excellency, the governor Felix. Greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and about to be killed by, by them when I came upon him with soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. And desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions... Uh, questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against this man, I sent him to you at once, ordering that his accusers also, uh, also to state before you what they have against him. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. And on the next day, they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. And when they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from. And when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. Let's pray together. Father, we give you thanks and praise this morning. We pause to acknowledge that you are God, there is no other. You are holy, you are mighty. And it is with a humility that we come before you, 
It is with gratitude for what Christ has done, what he accomplished on the cross and leaving the tomb behind and calling us by faith to be your children. Father, we thank you that we can come and sing praises to you and to uh, lift our hearts and voices before you. Father, we would ask that you would take and use this time. May your spirit move mightily in our hearts and in this place. We pray for our uh, East Campus. May your blessing be upon them this morning as well. Lord, would you work mightily in this area. And Lord, we pray for our global workers. We ask that you would be uh, working in each of their hearts and in their areas of ministry and be exalted today. Father, we give this time to you. We ask you to use it for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So we have a plot to kill Paul. Can you imagine having such zeal that you would devise an assassination plot? Certainly there are things that you and I are very passionate about, but but, but we're not likely going to be someone who kills for it. And, and these are the religious people. Obviously, there are extremists in our world today. But, but notice here how intense they are about Paul. They're fixated on Paul. And I would suggest that that speaks to you and I about God's power on display. It, it speaks about the impact of, of Paul's ministry, of his influence These people would not care. They would not go to these lengths if Paul's words and the gospel were fruitless. They wouldn't bother. They would think, so what if he's just a a crazy rebel who has just a few that respond and follow? They feared what Paul was capable of. And you and I know that it wasn't God, or it wasn't Paul's capabilities. It was God's working through Paul. But they feared Paul. This one man causes 40 Jewish men to conspire against him. That alone is amazing. And they agree to take an oath. And in Jewish law, speaking an oath out loud was a binding commitment. Both vows and oaths are very serious to Jews, even to this day. And there's a slight difference between an oath and a vow. Vows were typically focused on an object An individual restricts himself or herself from something. An oath is more focused on the person. It's it's more about accomplishing something or doing something or, or stating the truth of something. It pertains more to the individual. We know from our own Bible in Numbers chapter 30, verses 1 and 2, Uh, Moses speaks to the head of the tribes of the people of Israel saying, this is what the Lord has commanded. If a man vows a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. This is a big deal. And notice also this about the religious leaders. Not only were they willing willingly to, not only were they not objecting to this deceitful, murderous plot. They were also willing to participate. These are the godly people, right? They're willing to be part of a deceitful, murderous plot, and they're willing to even participate in it. 
We're talking about corruption here at the highest religious level. They're corrupt. Remember, we saw this last week with Ananias and his actions toward Paul. Here he's the high priest. Now, you and I can, can question this from a very reasonable perspective, asking how can these godly people follow and support such an ungodly behavior? Now, before we get too critical of them, I would suggest that you and I pause here and consider our own culture for a little bit. Consider the things that were happening with Catholic priests and altar boys for years that were kept concealed. Or even more recently, some of the failings of famous evangelical leaders. People were following them and following them, right? Because sins can be hidden from people, at least for a season. It's about deception, right? Being fooled. And that's our enemy's favorite tool, to lie and to deceive. Certainly here in today's text, we we see pretty widespread corruption on the part of these Jews. And I'll be getting, go back to a, main point I brought out earlier, and that is any religion devoid of Jesus is dangerous. And I'm going to restate that. I'm going to state it a little more strongly. All religion devoid of Jesus is dangerous. Now, maybe you want to push back there and go, wait, wait, that's unfair. I mean, there's some religions out there that aren't harmful. Anything that would suggest to anyone that there's another way of salvation other than Jesus is dangerous. Again, we're left to ask, how could could they be be like this? How, How could they miss out on this beautiful gospel that Paul has been presenting? And I think Paul answers that when he writes to the to the church in Corinth in his first letter in the first chapter, verse 18, he writes, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. I hate to break it to you folks, but there are people in this world who think you are crazy for sitting here today. Not because it's risky to sit on a chair that's just been repaired but because they would say, why would you give your morning to go and sing or listen? And, or why would you come in on a Saturday, Saturday morning and give your time to volunteer to do stuff? Or, or why would you give your money even? They would say, you're crazy. And that's because the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to you and I who know Christ, it is the power of God, right? So first we saw the plot, now notice God's provision. Back in our text we find Paul's nephew who overhears. We don't know his name, so we'll call him Paulus Nephewus. But the Jews plot an oath to kill him. 
So much of scripture, especially narrative, makes me crazy with questions. I want to pause here and I want to say, was this just coincidence? Did, did Paulus Nephews just happen to be in the right place? Or was it at least just God's providence? Did God stir in the heart of Paul's sister to commission her son? Hey, listen, today when you go into the marketplace and you go and you sell your olives, I don't want you to go to your usual spot. I want you to set up your stand over close by the Jews where they gather. And I don't care if you sell any olives. I don't care what you make. I want you to hear every word they say. Who knows? We don't, we don't know, right? But you know what? Kids make great spies. Charmaine and I have a couple of kids who we're convinced should work for the CIA. They can find out anything or discover anything we've been hiding. However it may have happened, God worked in it and through it, didn't he? Again, this is not new to these, to these later chapters of Acts, but Luke keeps pointing it out, and I think that's something that should draw our mind to it. God even uses these unbelieving Gentiles to protect Paul. The tribune, he, he, he reacts amazingly. He's willing to listen. I mean, look at 23 and 24. Then he called two of the centurions and said, get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night, also provide mounts for Paul to ride, to ride and to bring him safely to Felix the governor. 200 soldiers. 70 horsemen now, 200 spearmen. Let me tell you, 40 angry Jews do not have a chance against these trained warriors. They don't. And Paul is delivered to Felix in Caesarea safely. Certainly Paul made that journey fully aware of God's provision of safe passage for him. Now Paul stands trial. Look at chapter 24 with me. After five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation. In every way and everywhere we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly, for we have found this man a plague who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining yourself, you will be able to find out about him, or find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all of these things were so. Their case has been brought against him, and, and I'll go out on a limb here, and, and I think safely assume that Ananias and company are really mad now. They're annoyed by this. And there are uh, certainly some men who have either broken their sacred oath or buried. <laughs> K- 
Can you imagine how frustrated they must have been? They must have considered Paul untouchable. So Tertullus, their attorney figure, however you want to describe him, after trying to puff up Felix with their compliments and expressions of gratitude, brings forward their charges. He's a plague. He stirs up riots. A ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes and one who tried to profane the temple. Look at Paul's defense. Look at verse 10. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. And they didn't find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience before both God and man. Now after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present my offerings. And while I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you to make an accusation. Should they have anything against me or else... Let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council, other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them. It is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial before you this day. Paul's essentially saying, listen, you have no proof. (laughs) I didn't cause any problems. Matter of fact, look, I confess this to you. I'll acknowledge this. I'll I'll, I'll stand with this, that I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, and having a hope in God. And they, they believe the same thing, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. And I work hard to have a clear conscience before God and man. And he ultimately says, listen, to these Jews that have their accusations, where are they? They're not here to make their charges. And it would have been necessary in that system, right? So solid defense. But I want to keep us moving. I've got a lot to cover here. Before I read this next section, I want to give you a little bit of background. And I think Kent Hughes does a wonderful job of helping us understand who these characters are that gives us some clarity. He writes, Antonio Felix was the first slave in the history of the Roman Empire to become the governor of a Roman province. That would have been quite a distinction if he had earned it, but that was not the case. As a child, Felix, along with his brother Pallas, had been freed by Antonio, the mother of Prince Claudius, the future Caesar. As they grew up, Pallas became a close friend of Claudius, so much so that when Claudius became emperor, Pallas persuaded him to make Felix a government official in Palestine under Cuminus. 
When Cuminus was disposed, Felix obtained Cuminus's office through shameful intrigue. During Felix's governorship, insurrections and anarchy dramatically increased throughout Palestine because of his brutality. Josephus, tell, Josephus tells us that he repeatedly crucified the leaders of various uprisings. The Roman historian Tacitus described him as a master of cruelty and lust who exercised the power of a king with the spirit of a slave. Antonius Felix was an unscrupulous, brutal, scheming politician. Drusilla, his third wife, and Felix, her second husband, Drusilla was the youngest daughter of Agrippa I and had originally married Azazus, the king of Emesa, a small kingdom in Syria. She did not find Azazus very exciting and won Felix's affection through the help of a magician named Adamus, eventually becoming Felix's illicit lover and wife. She was barely 20 at the time, unusually beautiful. Her ambition and lust equaled that of her new husband. Unlike Felix, a pagan, Drusilla had been raised as a Jew, though she no longer had an active faith in one God. Now let me read to you verse 22 of chapter 24. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, when Lysias, the tribune, comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty, that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was a Jewish, or was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So he sent for him off and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus and desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. So Paul is, is at a point now where is, there's really no decision made. He's detained, but he's able to be cared for by friends. Now notice, while remembering some of the background uh, of Felix and Drusilla, that Paul chose to reason with them about righteousness, self-control, and upcoming judgment. How interesting. He kind of goes right to the heart of their issue there, doesn't he? And, and it says that Felix was alarmed and he sends Paul away. It would seem that Paul crafted his message in such a way that it was alarming to them. It struck a nerve with Felix. So much so that he just says, okay, all right, let's just stop here. He's fearful and concerned. And what does he do? He, he, he postpones it. Hey, we'll talk later. And then there's more conversations, but it, it seemed that Felix was doing that, hoping to get money from Paul. So Paul's there in prison for two years. What patience. 
And some of you might be thinking now, that's where he's going with that rest idea, so Paul's just resting in prison. That wasn't what I was thinking, but it could work. Now, I want to make some observations here, if I may. Paul was direct and thoughtful in his comments to Felix and Drusilla. Good evangelism, right? He's addressing them where they are with, with the concerns that are, are relevant to them. We don't know what all he said and how he said it. But the response was of fear and trembling, of alarm. Now, that phrase, the way it's written out in its original language, is actually quite similar to a phrase that we saw earlier in Acts. And it was that Philippian jailer, remember? He wakes up to find the doors are open and he goes to kill himself because he thinks that that Paul and Silas and everybody else have escaped. And they say, no, no, don't do it. We're all here, right? So he comes running before them in fear and trembling. And there's a close parallel to the way those are laid out. But what does he say? Hey, thanks for that. Can we talk later? No. He says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? He was alarmed, like, like Felix was, but contrast that with Felix, who, who when, when Paul's message starts to come to the heart, it starts to stir something in him, and it creates some anxiety in him that maybe he doesn't have all the answers, or that maybe there's something more to this thing about God and about Jesus. What does he do? He, he throws up his hands and says, okay, that's enough. How about we talk about this later? He procrastinates. Paul wrote about this in his second letter to the church in Corinth in chapter 6. He said, working together with him, then we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in favorable times I listened to you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Don't wait, Felix. Don't back away because it makes you a little uncomfortable to think that there is a God out there and that judgment is coming and that the things that you've done and even the things you've inherited from the, the sins in the garden make you unworthy to stand before him. Don't wait. Don't run from that. Listen. Hear the way of salvation. I don't know every one of you, but maybe... Your own soul is uneasy about where you are with God. May I encourage you not to procrastinate about that, to seek, to ask more questions, to to read the book, to find the answers, to, to not run away from Jesus, but to run to him because the ultimate escape from danger is through faith in Jesus Christ. Second observation, and I'm going to ask you to indulge me in a little bit of speculative fun this morning. Sanctified imagination. How about that? We'll call it that. (laughs) Look with me back again 
at the nephew. Verse 16 in chapter 23. Now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush. So he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, take this young man to the tribune for he has something to tell him. You think Paul was scared in that moment? Think about it for a minute first. Think about what we've been learning. I'd suggest to you that he wasn't. Because remember, for Paul, last night the Lord had paid him a a visit. Encouraged him, said, listen, what you've testified about here, you're going to testify about later, right? So that certainly was encouraging to him. I think he had maybe had an initial alarm, but I think that quickly turned to delight at how their plot was uncovered. How does not Paul, how does Paul not enjoy this? That his own nephew comes to him and says, listen, they're going to kill you. There's a plan. I believe he probably sent his nephew away and maybe he leans back in his cell, crosses his arms, smiles and just laughs. Says, God, you're so good. You are so good, God. Think about it. Before long, Paul is traveling safely in a massive police escort. Massive. I I can just imagine him thinking as he's riding along in the middle of this, this whole guard that he's got around him, he's riding along on his horse, just thinking, Who am I? A prisoner that I should be treated so carefully. But then he thinks about who he is in Christ. And he gets it. Folks, I just imagine him being able to rest in the certainty that he was safe under the watchful care of a loving God. Riding along, looking at this massive entourage, just thinking, God, this is overkill. I didn't even need all this. Brothers and sisters in Christ, is there any rest in your soul or are you in constant turmoil? Are you in constant anxiety? Are you worried about this or worried about that? And you're thinking, uh, where's God in all this? And, and, and can I ask you, do you rest in the certainty of God's love and his care? If we understand the book, if we believe it, we realize we have a God who knows every detail, who cares, and who loves us, and nothing is out of his reach and nothing is out of his control. And you and I in Christ can rest in that. It can be well with your soul because God is so good. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus, can I encourage you that it can be well with your soul too. There's a God who loves you. And his son met all the demands. You don't have to meet them. He did it. And through faith in Christ, you too can rest and be at peace in your own soul. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we offer you praise and adoration because you're so good. 
And we realize that any suffering we endure here is nothing compared to what Jesus endured. He suffered in our place. He suffered on our behalf. He took your wrath and your judgment for us upon himself that we would be set free by grace, mercy, through faith in what he accomplished. Lord, we thank you that we as your people who are, ne are never out of his watchful eye and his care, that even when our circumstances are crazy, that God, you are on your throne and there's no one greater. Father, may we as your people be able to walk with a spring in our step and joy in our hearts because we know that we have a God who cares and a God who's taken care of it all. Father, I would pray that each person in here today would know Jesus as their Savior, would have invite him in to find that peace and then just to rest in the goodness and the grace of you, our God. And we pray all this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus. Amen.